Rick Mehta, who's a current Georgetown University health law professor and former FDA official, also has uh, been a Senate candidate in the past, and uh, help us unpack this, a pharmacist, by the way, too. What is it you don't do, Rick? Thanks for being with me. Hey, Randy. Great to be back on. Hey, I wanted to talk with you about this. I think that... Um, you know, I, I think that all of us uh, people that that are in science and in health, and we realize that what we learned 10 years ago may not always be true, you know, now, uh, right? And that things change and science evolves. What role yeah. did the what role did the the, the uh, apparently critical nature of this virus, the rapid evolution of our understanding of it, what role might that have in mitigating the many missteps of Dr. Fauci or not? What say you? Well, I'll tell you right now, uh, Randy, I think one of the areas of concern for most Americans who are not necessarily educated in immunology uh, and just want straight talk about what's going on is that the NIH, the CDC, and all of the leaders of the public health department were not honest with the American public. I mean, many of us in the medical community, scientific, epidemiologists said, and, and, and listen, we know about COVID and gain of functions, but we also know that viruses mutate. And we know that vaccines were going to be built off the parental strain. And we know that there were going to be mutations that were rapidly evolving. Had Dr. Fauci come out and said, listen, guys, we were, we're never going to reach herd immunity. It's good that you talk to your patient, you talk to your physician and, and preserve the patient-physician relationship. And let's work out what's going to be best for you as an individual, making your decisions about your health care rather than this top-down approach that trampled on people's individual liberties, forced vaccines uh, mandates, uh, had these really bizarre, contradictory rules about masking and unmasking kept kids out of the schools, shut down our businesses, affected people's personal lives. Had that not happened, had they respected the rule of law and not used public health as a pretext to control people's lives, we'd be sitting in a very different uh, outcome. And this isn't something that's like, you know, hindsight, you know, Monday morning uh, quarterbacking. This is something that we've been pounding our fist and talking about as the COVID response had rolled out. Uh, and Dr. Fauci just didn't listen to anybody but himself. Yeah, I, it's it's funny to see a guy who really had a fairly storied career. He was he was really pivotal in the whole HIV problem in the 80s and, and worked tirelessly to, I think, make a huge difference in how we came to understand and manage that. It, it just is an example of, I think, how power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And you're so right. I, I thought of the pinnacle in terms of his deception and, and arrogance was when he smugly you know, said that, well, he really sort of told a lie about the masks because he, he when he said they weren't necessary because he wanted to save them for health care workers. That, I think tells a lot about his whole philosophy of, well, let them eat cake, I'm the boss, and I'll do what I damn well please. And it's a shame, because now the the public health community has a lot of trust to regain, don't you think? Well, absolutely. And listen, this is a gentleman who went to Congress and said, well, if you question me, you question science, basically saying that anything he says is scientific. And and that kind of ego really just didn't sit well with uh, uh, Congress. It didn't sit well with the American public. Uh, and, you know, this isn't just uh, me speaking about it, opinionating. This is poll numbers that showed when they surveyed Americans, the confidence they had in the CDC, the confidence they had specifically in Dr. Fauci uh, plus 
did significantly uh, as they continue to show uh, breakthrough cases in vaccinated individuals. Now we're seeing rebound cases in those that are taking treatments that have been double, triple, quadruple vaccinated with boosters. Uh, and so the misinformation, uh, the, you know, the flip-flopping, that really has, I think, created a lot of distrust in the American public. So I think, frankly, those that would have otherwise trusted public health departments now are hesitant to be vaccinated. I think, you know, the country is ready to move on from Anthony Fauci. I think so. Speaking of the vaccine, let's have a little scientific discussion here. Um, I, I think we could all agree that there was that the, the, the vaccine, uh, at least in the high risk groups, uh, the, the risk versus benefit was probably helpful in some of the earlier variants. I mean, I don't know how long we could say that held out, but certainly with the original type that it was designed against, that it helped keep people out of the hospital or on a, on a ventilator or, or dead. But as this genetic drift goes on, I think a lot of people are struggling, including the medical community, except for the highest of, of, the, of the officials, uh, in, in advising patients that are saying, look, should I get a booster now? What should I do? I'm, you know, I'm being told by the authorities, get that booster. And I'm thinking, well, I'm hearing that there's some things in the pipeline that will be uh, more uh, aligned with the most recent or at least some of the, uh, the, the closer, at least in the genetic lineage, uh, to more recent strains. Where, where do you stand currently on vaccine use? And I know, you know, I'm not asking you for medical advice so much here, but what, what is the data telling you, your read on it? Yeah, well, well, listen, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, the vaccine certainly was a one tool in the armamentarium of treatment options and other tools that we have to to address the virus and, and attack it and, you know, subdue to make sure that people were kept out of the hospitals. Uh, but I think what you hit on was is really important. And, and to highlight that a little bit is that uh, this could be stratified into particular risk groups, right? We know that those that are elderly or comorbid uh, conditions or immunocompromised or other kind of conditions where the virus is going to have a more negative impact on them. Uh, that's something that wasn't done early on in the rollout. Now we're seeing new boosters or new vaccines being developed. Uh, but, you know, again, the American public is being misled to think, well, it's a COVID vaccine, which means it's one. Uh, and then there's like continued uh, developments on that vaccine. Well, the truth is these are variant strains. Uh, you know, the parental strain, I, I don't think is uh, really even seen much with the original virus viruses developed. And so the vaccine itself is going to continue to evolve. And in fact, Anthony Fauci himself said, well, listen, uh, you know, we're all going to have to live with this. This is endemic, which he declared a couple of days ago, of which we've been saying for over a year now, you know, <laughs> right. most people have been exposed. And what I think the thing that sits the least well with me is that they made us feel like we were wearing tinfoil hats if we talked about natural immunity. If yes. we talked about the development of our own polyclonal antibodies as reaction to being exposed to COVID, they're saying, throw that out the window. doesn't matter if you're healthy. doesn't matter if you've been exposed. doesn't matter if you just got over COVID and have antibody. You still got to go get the vaccine. That makes no sense to me. That's a conversation that should have happened between a patient and a physician. And this top-down government approach, trampling on our individual liberties, really, I think, yeah. it culminates into why people have so much distrust in the government. Yeah, I have to be honest with you. I, 
Originally, I had great hope because of the rapid development of this and the, the, the thought that, my gosh, is this is it possible that because unlike other vaccines, we, we can really get on top of this this virus and potentially really limit its spread? You know, I had optimism just because of the way this thing was being rolled out. But then it became clear that it was escaping vaccine effectiveness. It was like at that point, I was not so much do it. You know, vac- we all do vaccines, I think, for ourselves. But. The general consensus has been you also do it to get some herd immunity. But it became obvious that wasn't the biology of the interaction between this vaccine and this virus. And it, they, they just took too long to abandon that. And I think it was, it was a cry and shame because, as you say, the, the social and now we're seeing the ripple, the many ripple effects on the economy that are just uh, just so uh, dramatic and hurting people so badly. Uh, look, can we pivot to Rochelle Walensky? It's sort of the same story, different uh, same book, different chapter. Right. Um, uh, to her credit, she said she took a mea culpa for the for the agency and said there needs some reforms. Uh, were you happy with her um, statement recently and, and what you can glean from what she said she's going to do? It sounded like mainly we just need better communication, but I think they also need some better analysis. What say you? Listen, you know, for those that live paycheck to paycheck, for those that their small businesses were crushed, uh, whose families were destroyed by this rollout, you know, a mea culpa is just not enough. What I wanted to see was the CDC director resign and say, listen, I wasn't the right person for this, and I made mistakes, and it affected the American public. It affected our mental health. It affected a myriad of other public health issues because I made this country laser-focused on a single public health issue, ignored everything else, and by doing that, uh, you know, I, I created a significant amount of problems uh, that our country is now trying to reel out of. Uh, so that kind of responsibility, fine, you admit it, but then, you know, step down and admit that you're not good enough to be able to handle this issue. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's saying that you're going to reorganize the CDC, uh, saying that you're sorry just is not enough for the kind of damage uh, that was done to our country. I mean, you think about her saying that, uh, you know, it was back in what, uh, the spring of last year, told the Senate committee that uh, fully vaccinated individuals can't pass COVID-19. That was in May of last year. And the data was clearly out there, right? Uh, there was a lot of contradiction about uh, about pregnancy and so forth. Um, this, like you said, her public uh, pronouncements about reopening schools and so forth. Um, I, I don't know. I just think that she just got it wrong. And it's not just a communication problem. It's a content problem. But like you say, I think if, if the delivery on the part of all the public health officials would have been more, more uh, just just full of a little more humility, the American people have a lot of grace, and they'll ex- they'll, they don't expect every human being uh, or collection of them to be perfect. It was just the, a lot of it was delivery that got themselves in trouble. Uh, would you agree or not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, the original intent and master plan was to reach herd immunity. The problem is, is that when they finally realized that they weren't going to reach herd immunity, and remember, even the FDA said, well, we're not going to approve a vaccine until we get at least, I think the number was 85 percent efficacy. And then that was thrown out the window. uh, And they said, well, now 
federal public health emergency to issue emergency use authorization. Let's just pump this out, pump this out. When they couldn't reach herd immunity, they never pivoted off of the master plan. And that, I think, is what frustrated uh, people and frustrated America, because now you're reeling from a crushed economy. And arguably, we're in a recession because of the uh, failed response that they had to COVID by shutting everything down. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's they need to take a responsibility for these actions. But again, had they listened to the advice of many of the committees that were out there and other uh, opinions, rather than shutting down and saying, I know best and having an egotistical attitude towards the response, I think we would have been in a much different uh, position. We're talking with Rick Mehta, former consumer safety officer at the FDA, also a biotech entrepreneur, pharmacist, attorney, adjunct professor of law at Georgetown University Law Center with health law and regulation. Look, as a consumer safety officer, as long as we're doing a postmortem on agencies, let we, well, let's pick on the FDA a little bit. And I just wonder how, how bothered were you about some of the SOPs, some of the policies in terms of committees and their approval of emergency use? I'm thinking of two, wasn't it two members on a committee, review committee, that uh, resigned because of the, the rush to, to uh, approval of emergency use for young children. Your thoughts looking in the rearview mirror, rear mirror at the FDA's performance during the COVID crisis? Well, it's like watching a train barreling down into a wreck and you're screaming to tell it to stop and they're just not listening. What they did by issuing emergency use authorization, circumventing the gold standard towards the approval process, uh, has completely eroded the public confidence and the integrity of what, would, what was otherwise a global gold standard towards uh, approval and trust in medical products. Uh, and this is disturbing. Uh, in fact, we see now that we have a federal public health emergency for monkeypox, uh, which is otherwise a rare disease and a rare infection, uh, primarily in, you know, as we know, the polyamorous gay and bisexual community, uh, has risen now to a federal public health emergency simply because they don't have enough supply of vaccines. And in order to change the way we administer that, and cut the dose, they had to issue another emergency use authorization, not, you know, again, <laughs> circumventing the process. Uh, so, yeah, it, it's become a train wreck now, one that, you know, again, many of us are screaming, telling it to stop and slow down and watch out. Uh, and now what's happened is a complete erosion of public confidence and trust of what took over about 100 years of, to build that, you know, gold standard for approval that we all uh, know, uh, that imprimatur that we expect to have on our medical products uh, on. And you hate to you hate to think about the real, you know, I'm thinking of the movie Contagion, you know, some honest to God, you know, Armageddon type crisis and maybe some actual good advice coming out of these various agencies and everyone yawning and saying, no, nope, never again, not going to trust you out to, to America's own peril. That is I, I hope that's the the offspring, the spawn of all of this uh, mis miscreant judges that they've done that uh, that we never have to see. That's what I'm really concerned about, Rick. Yeah, I just hope yeah. it doesn't happen. No, I couldn't hey, well, thanks for being with me. Always great analysis. Appreciate that very, very much. You have a fabulous weekend, and let's look forward to giving Dr. Fauci a big uh, retirement slap on the butt as he heads out the door in December. <laughs> okay? <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. All right. Well, there he is, Rick Mehta, and lots of wisdom there uh, about what went wrong and what we need to do in the future to fix and restore our uh, tr trust in public health.
Hey, well, I'm looking forward to the next uh, segment. We're going to be talking with Ross Malone. He is a Missouri history, well, I would just say he's Missouri's historian of, uh, of record, at least as far as I'm concerned. He writes books, newspaper features, magazine articles celebrating life in Missouri. And he's got a new book out talking about Medal of Honor winners. And um, he's a prolific writer. So we'll talk about some of the um, prominent Missourians you may not have heard about, but they made a big difference in this world. Ross Malone, Missouri writer, right after the break here on News Talk STL. Randy Tober with you. to the program. Pleasure to be with you this morning. I'm Randy Tobler. Leah Armstead, producer extraordinaire, is over there making sure all the music goes right. Did you know I like that disco music? I'm sorry. I, oh, really? You know, yeah, she's patronizing. I know you liked Earth, Wind, and Fire, but... I love Earth, Wind, and Law. Oh, yeah. yeah Earth, Wind, and Fire. That was Michael Jackson right there. I know it was, but I mean, I just like those were the good old days. Yeah. Uh, Ross Malone joins us now. He's a prolific Missouri writer, a historian extraordinaire, and um, he joins me now. He's out with, um, he's just got great, great publications. And I've already been working my way through a couple of them. Um, uh, Missouri's Forgotten Heroes a couple of years ago, the new one, Extreme Valor, about Missouri's Medal of Honor winners. And he joins us now. How you doing, Ross? Thanks for joining me on this Saturday morning. Good morning, Randy. Thank you for uh, letting me come on and talk about Missouri history. I love to do that. I know. And you're so good at it. And you make it so, it, it just comes alive. I was looking at your Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash Ross Malone M or Mo Writer, Ross Malone Mo Writer. And I noticed um you have a today in history. I don't know how you how you get all these facts, but I didn't realize that, that today Carondelet. Carondelet was incorporated as a town and just a little bit to the uh, to the west, uh, city of Herman was founded today. Uh, first a Carondelet in 32 and and Herman in uh, in 36. My gosh, how do you first of all what what was the genesis of your keen and intense interest in Missouri history? Well, I taught Missouri history. So, and um, Randy, if you if I could take just a second, um, I I did a real self study one time, trying to figure out what can I do to to be a better teacher, what can I do to increase retention for my students and make that learning stick. And um, I I thought of what do I remember from my days in school, what do I remember from college, and and it came back to me the things I remembered and the people that I remembered teaching were people who told stories, and and the stories were what I ended up remembering over the years. And I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. You know, Jesus taught with parables, and Aesop taught with fables, and and uh, we had uh, Shakespeare's stories that we remember, and even the tiniest details and implications, and, you know, stories work. So I started collecting stories that uh, had something to do with what I was teaching in science or in social studies, which was Missouri history. And uh, the, the, it was just such a fascinating thing. When I retired, um, I you know, did one thing and another and, and ended up people asking me to write these stories down that I was doing. And uh, that's how we all started. <laughs> so now 20 some books later, you know, I'm still <laughs> collecting stories. And, and I got a kick. On, uh, I got a kick out of it too, that you're a, uh, you're a musician. So we're, uh, we're connected at the hip there with our lover, love of music as well. And uh, I, I, got uh, oh, I, I love playing. Uh, 
I'm in a brass quintet and, and play tuba. You know, tuba is the bacon of music, so. <laughs> oh, you're going to get some pushback from some of those trumpet players uh, now. Wait a minute. Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Yeah, so, so the way, the way you yeah, in your in your books you've uh, the, that we mentioned, and of course you have a number of publications, but um, uh, and it, uh, you can folks can learn more about those and, and obtain those either on on Amazon or on RossMalone.com. Uh, I just got a the biggest kick over people that have really made a big difference in in the world, um, and sometimes just in their own sphere, but often much larger influence right from all over Missouri. I mean, names that people haven't heard of, and yet made a big difference. I mean, whether they were war heroes and amazing stories uh, or whether, you know, they made uh, cultural or, or academic or other contributions. And it's really amazing. I think it makes you proud to be a Missourian when you read these stories. Why don't you, let's, let's just unpack a few of these. How about um, uh, O.P. Howe? I think that's a, that's a good one. Let's talk about O.P. Howe. Yeah. O.P. was a little guy and uh, he was 12 years old when he enlisted in the army and he was 14 when he earned his medal of honor and he really earned it too um his brother was 10 years old that day when they enlisted but uh, this, this happened because their father was the regimental band director and so they went off to the civil war as drummer boys but by the time he was 14 he was heavily involved in the battle of vicksburg and his company was uh under heavy fire and running out of ammunition, and they were the right flank of the Union Army. And anyway, they were they were about to be overrun because they had no ammunition. So Opie went crawling around among the corpses and the wounded out on the battlefield, taking 54 caliber ammunition, which is what his guys needed. And I mean, stop and think for a second: what were you doing when you were 14? So mm. here was Opie out there getting rounding up this information. Well, his colonel. Uh, called him and said, I, I've got a mission for you. I want you to run to General Sherman and find him and tell him what our situation is. Tell him we have to have more ammunition or we'll be overrun. And um, he, he didn't know it, but actually six men were sent on that on that run, and five were killed. Opie was shot, but he went down, uh, got back up, and limped on his way, and uh, he found General Sherman and told him what the situation was, emphasized the 54 caliber thing it had to be, and uh, wow. then he made his way to a hospital, and uh, he, he was just, you know, quite a guy, and he marched over 4,000 miles during that war playing the drum. He wasn't just marching. He was playing the drum as he marched, and, you know, you know so quite a, quite a kid. He really earned what he got. Well, that's the amazing thing as we think about, you know, it, the, the we we joke about, but maybe it's not such a joke about how each generation seems to be a little bit softer than the previous one. And so, if you go back however many generations that was, and you think, "Holy yeah. cow, man, what a, what a what a weak, spineless snowflake am I?" Huh? I mean, fourteen yeah. years old. It's amazing. Crazy. The neat thing I uh, I learned about these Medal of Honor people was that they were outside the box kind of people they were very individualist individualistic go-getters and uh, that didn't end when the war ended when they came back home those were lucky enough came to come home uh, they came back home as uh, very exciting interesting people and like Opie went down to Springfield and was a dentist and that didn't seem like maybe it was much you know very exciting 
but he had some excitement in his life, and he ended up being one of the biggest court cases there that they ever had. And, uh, you know, they, it's these were interesting people through their entire lives, put it that way. Yeah, yeah, and that's I think that's the way to put it. Every one of the stories, whether it's the Medal of Honor uh, recipients in Extreme Valor, uh, your latest book, or uh, Missouri's Forgotten uh, Heroes, another great, great uh, publication. I just think it's a beautiful, a beautiful celebration of, of interesting and and influential people. Uh, I, can, can you tell us a little bit? I'd, I'd like to have the audience learn a little bit about Michael Ellis. I think the interesting story there. Yeah, he is. He he's an interesting story. All right, he was. Uh, uh, his parents were Polish immigrants. He was actually born in St. Louis, but. Uh, he, you know, considered himself Polish, and uh, his fact, his name was a name I can't pronounce. His last name, he changed it to Ellis. But uh, he was known as, uh, with World War uh, One. he was known as uh, Machine Gun Mike and the uh, Polish Sergeant York, and he was famous all over the country um, and quite a hero to the Polish community. Um, in fact, uh He's had several books written about him, and yet, you know, who's heard of him? We've forgotten him already. But um, one day, um, he was in France fighting, and he moved ahead of his company, and all by himself, single-handedly, attacked several machine gun nests, and he silenced 11 machine guns that day and captured dozens of enemy soldiers oh. all by himself. Oh, uh, he, he was quite wow. a guy. Um, yeah. But his... As special as he was, I mean, he came home and settled down in St. Louis, and he uh, and he he had been in the army even before that, and already had a distinguished service cross. But uh, he got his Medal of Honor that day. But when he came home, you know, he could not land a job, and he uh, his his goal was to work for the post office. And you know, just as special as this guy was, he couldn't pass the test. And finally, the president stepped in and appointed him to a job at the post office. And uh, it was just, you know, it's, it's kind of funny how you, you think, well, this guy's got it made. He's a great hero. And he was. But everybody has problems. <laughs> yeah. Well, and everyone has special gifts and everyone has special, you know, their Achilles heel. You know, I mean, all of us. Uh, right. Except for producer Leah over here. I mean, I, I, I'm still <laughs> waiting to find a problem with Leah. Yeah, we love her. <laughs> Well, uh, hey, uh, so you know, it's interesting. You mentioned that he had uh, changed his name. My uh, my wife's uh, grandpa on her mom's side uh, was a uh, an immigrant from Poland, and actually, to gain you know to 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 integrate into society and assimilate, he changed his name. I think his uh, name was Molesovich, something like that, and he changed uh -huh. it to Brown. It's Jerry Brown, and so uh, that's that. I don't think that was an unusual tactic as people immigrants in those nope. times wanted to uh, wanted to assimilate at all. Do you? Uh, my wife's name, uh, family name, and my family name were both changed. So that's I'll uh, be that's the way yeah. you, you did what you had to do. Hey, in the last couple minutes we have here, um, an interesting story about uh, Fitz Guerin. I knew I once knew a guy named Guerin. I wonder if he's related. Missouri uh, a Medal of Honor recipient and a and a photographer. This is a this is a quirky story. Oh, the quirky is right. He, uh, okay, he he was a, you know, a good guy, and he was aboard the Cheeseman, which was a riverboat trying to run the blockade past Vicksburg. 
and because at Vicksburg they had the Mississippi River Valley tied up. The, they couldn't ship produce down the Illinois River, the Missouri River, the Arkansas River, the, uh, any, any, the Ohio River. They were all tied up at Vicksburg. So they, the Confederates had a stranglehold on the Union there. And so it was very important, the stuff that happened. He tried on a, on a riverboat called the Cheeseman to run past and he had very heroic actions that day, which earned him the Medal of Honor. And then he came back to St. Louis. And he, like I said before, these were, you know, outside the box kind of people. And when he got here, he decided he wanted to give photography a try. And so he learned the, he learned the trade. And he got very good. And then he had the audacity to enter some of his photographs at the World's Fair in Paris. And mm. he won the, the uh, most prestigious award there. So now he had a reputation in St. Louis because of that, yeah. and people flocked to him. And he made these beautiful photographs that are still around with uh, the sons and daughters, the debutantes of the wealthiest, most prosperous people in St. Louis, and he posed them in whimsical settings on, you know, on board ships or whatever, you know, and just very beautiful stuff, actually. But his, on his quirky side, he he'd do anything for a buck, and so he he uh, worked for cigarette companies, and he took all these wonderful pictures that are still around. You can just look them up on eBay or on on Amazon, uh, Google Images or something. But he um, he took pictures of children smoking the cigarettes, beautiful little children <laughs> with curly oh hair and all, God. with yeah. a fag hanging out the mouth. You know. <laughs> yeah, I saw and that. Then, I thought you got to be kidding me, <laughs> but it's real. Yeah. They're there. Yeah. And also, he took pictures of animals smoking, like chickens and goats. And I mean, how did he get them to keep that cigarette hanging out of their mouth? <laughs> I don't well, know. that's real yeah. artwork, I guess. You know, that's art. Yeah. You know, when you when you when you challenge the uh, reality with absurdity, you know. So well, he also <laughs> and he won, and he won called, the prize. Yeah. Yep. He also did something called bachelor art, which. Um, you know, use your imagination on that. <laughs> I think we will. It's a family up. show. It's a family show, Ross. Yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> hey, well, we want to thank you for all that you've done to help um, expand everyone's knowledge, your students previously, and now the, the adult uh, students and this audience on um, the okay. wonderful and, and, and just deep and wide uh, space that Missourians have in history. And uh, I would commend everyone to reading your, your stuff online, of course, at uh, the Facebook page. Um, uh, Ross Malone, and I, writer, and, and your your website too, RossMalone.com. Yep, RossMalone.com. It's a great way to get the books, or if someone needs a speaker at one of their uh, conventions or something, I love doing that. Well, that'd be great, and you know, it'd be a good idea, folks, for you to who maybe you're looking at uh, some alternative schooling, whether it's homeschooling or sending your kid to another school or even a public school. Maybe pick up a couple of these books and make sure you put it into the hands of the history teachers, the librarians and uh, get this into the hands of our children so that they can connect with history. It's so, so very important. Ross, thank you so much for being with me, and thanks for all you've done to celebrate Missouri history. Thanks, Randy. I sure appreciate the opportunity. There he is, Ross Malone. And uh, coming up, Virginia Cruda, our regular visit with her. As we drill down on some of the great stories she's been writing, the stories of the week, I've got to ask her about uh, an aging rocker, uh, that uh, tried to insult the MAGA, but it blew up in his face. We'll talk with her about that and other stories of the week and the day here on Randy Tober Show, News Talk STL 1019-941. Be right back. Don't talk to you. 
Saturday. Well, we're discoing on a Saturday. That wasn't on I purpose. Silk, I got my silk shirt on and the bell bottoms and the, <laughs> the platform shoes. I don't know if Virginia has those on. Virginia Cruda joins us now at VA Cruda on Twitter and a, and a writer at the Daily Wire. How you doing, Virginia? Thanks for being with me again. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. It's jump day here. We're down in Destin spending some days, some family time, and we got to check out here after the show. But I brought my portable studio with me because I would not miss a day with you and with the audience. Um, hey, what do you think of the goings on this week? Particularly, I got to ask your thoughts about the student loan forgiveness issue. Where do you stand on that? How do you process that? Are you still paying off loans? Well, you know, you're a, you're a veteran. So I guess, did, did you get caught no. in a loan trap or uh, right. No, no, I did not. Um, and what, and my issue with this, um, you know, there are all these people who are, who are getting angry about it on social media saying, you know, why do you want everybody else to suffer just because you did? Cause there are a lot of people who say, you know, I worked really hard to pay off student loans and, and now here they are getting forgiven. Well, I'm not, I'm not in that position. I never took out student loans. Um, I didn't, but my problem with the issue is much bigger because we're, we're setting up a situation where we're not taking care of the endowment grift at the top. We're just paying off the student loans at the bottom. And it doesn't actually, it's, it's like putting a bandaid on a sucking chest wound. You're not, you're not going to accomplish anything by doing this. Unless, unless your goal was to further divide the American people, because you do have people who are angry because they worked really hard to pay off their loans, and now they're being saddled with new loans and that they didn't take out. And, you know, you have the people who are saying, well, you know, they're, they're just canceling the debt. That doesn't mean that somebody else has to pay it. Well, yes, it does, because it creates a government shortfall. It creates... Mm-hmm a hole in the federal budget that's got to be filled with something. And it can be that when the government has a shortfall like this, and we're talking about $330 billion is, is approximately what's being forgiven, I guess here. At a minimum. $330 billion budget shortfall now that the government's got to make up for somehow. And they have a choice, obviously. The federal government, when they look at their budget, they can choose to spend less or they can choose to tax the American people more. And I'm just going to let you guess which one of those things is more likely. So well, you got to wonder, Virginia, don't you have to wonder yeah. if there's some some grand strategy between, uh, behind knowing this was coming down the line, as you say, creating a bigger hole in the big you know, debt deficit and, and deficit problem and the whole 87,000 IRS agents in the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, are those dots worth connecting? Well, I think that the dots that are worth connecting is, is that the Biden administration has has said that they're not going to tax people more if they're making under $400,000. So what they've got to do is make sure that nobody's getting through any of the loopholes. And the way you do that is with more IRS agents. And so I think that even uh, one, I don't believe for a second that they're not going to tax people making under $400,000 anymore. I I don't believe that for even, even a split second. I think they are going to tax everybody more, whether it's through inflation 
or through an actual tax that they're going to put, that they're they're going to implement. However, the best way to make sure you're getting the most out of your money without taxing people more is to make sure nobody's getting through the tax loopholes that are already there. And the way you do that is with more IRS agents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even if they don't raise the rate, and of course, I'm sure they reserve the right to do that. So I I think they're going to audit people more even if they don't officially raise. More enforcement, which is the same. I mean, that just means more coins dropping into the government coffers. Um, You know, I, I, I just... You know, what about the, how do you answer those who are critical of those of us who think it's a bad program for many reasons you've, you've talked about? Um, yeah. And they say, well, uh, what about the, what about those small business people that are bellyaching that they paid off their loans and, uh, you know, and, and now, but they, they didn't have a problem taking that government money, that PPP money. Hey, come on. I think it's somewhat of autism and apples and oranges, right, but right. let's say you. So, so with the, with the PPP loans, what what happened essentially was the government told you you couldn't keep your business open. And then the government offered you a way to keep paying your employees so that they wouldn't be on the government dole taking the excess unemployment, right? Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, the PPP loans were supposed to be... Now, granted, there was certainly some fraud involved, but the people who took them for legitimate reasons, took them to continue paying their employees so that they didn't have to either go out of business or fire people after they were told by the government that they couldn't stay open or they couldn't maintain as operations the way they had been going before. Or they had to implement changes like put up plexiglass dividers and force everyone to wear masks and everything else. So... Essentially, the PPP loans were put in place to defray a government-imposed expense that you didn't have a choice but to absorb if you wanted to keep your business. Student loans are entirely optional. You don't have to go to college. If you do go to college, you don't have to take out student loans. And if you do take out student loans, you don't have to default on them. You can get whatever job you need to to make sure that they're paid off. Yeah, yeah. Well, you don't have to get a job in your field. Right, right. You know, the other thing about this whole issue is this is a moral hazard that now a precedent will be set if, in fact, this goes through. We've already seen skyrocketing tuition rates way out of proportion with the CPI over the last 25 years or so. And that's because the government's gotten involved in it and, you know, they backed up, you know, unsecured loans to 17 and 18 year olders. How's that working out for you? Yeah. They couldn't get a loan to buy a used car, but they can do this for $120,000. And the loan offerings are a... disproportionate. They target people who are yeah. least likely to be able to pay them back in the first place. For for example, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you a real world. My daughter's 18. She just started a couple of weeks ago at McKendree university in Illinois. Okay. For in-state tuition, if she were going to live at the school, tuition, room, and board is $32,000 annually. Okay. Without room and board, we're still looking at about twenty, twenty thousand dollars annually. 
she qualified for a whopping $3,000 per year in federal student loans. So the most debt she can graduate with is about fifteen grand, as far as with federally backed student loans. She can still take out private ones if she chose to, but as of right now, she can only – so the federal government is targeting people – who make less money because on, if if yeah. my income had been lower, if my husband's income had been lower, she would have gotten a lot more available to her in student loans. So like if she, if she takes out the full amount in student loans and she owes $15,000 upon graduation, she's, she's scheduled to graduate in five years with a master's degree in sports medicine. Chances are she can handle $15,000 in debt. But when you're talking about the average person who's getting a humanities degree, say, and I know we joke about like, you know, intersectional basket weaving or whatever else it is, but you can get, (laughs) you can get degrees in these, in these, where the only possible thing that you could do with this degree is either write a book and it would have to do well for you to get anywhere with it or put yourself back into the system and start teaching more kids the same useless thing you just graduated with a degree in. Well, you're right. No, we've, we've, we've proliferated uh, less than valuable just in terms of monetary degrees, not that they don't have some value to someone intrinsically, but uh, in terms of productivity and value, uh, we've proliferated yeah. those. We've, we've extended this. It's become a vicious cycle. And and they're giving loans to the people that are, in many cases, less likely to be able to afford them. Well, I, I, I have to thank you for this analysis because, and the personal uh, you know, story about that, because that really brings it home. And I didn't get to it, but I want to refer people to your uh, story on uh, D. Snyder, the uh, yeah. <laughs> Twisted Sisters rocker. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you had a lot of fun. And so if folks want to navigate to dailywire.com and, uh, and check out Virginia's writing on that, that's, uh, that's great. Hey, I, uh, we never have enough time, but the time we spend and the time we spent today was always super valuable and very appreciated. Thanks, Virginia. Have a great weekend. You too. All right. Virginia Cruda with the Daily Wire and her weekly uh, visit with us here on the Randy Tobler Show. It's uh, This thing is a mess, and we've got to get a handle on this. The more that they create these easy loans and now start hinting that, yeah, they can be forgiven, Prices are only going to go up for college tuition. It's only going to get worse. Well, we're going to switch gears and talk to Todd Benzman, get a border update. There's been a woefully low amount of reporting on that. We're going to catch you up to speed on that and some interesting boots on the ground reporting he's done. Here on News Talk STL, 1019-941, The Randy Tober Show. Be right back. Be right back.